0: Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Amit Bindra and Max Barrick. We are members of the board of directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who
1: empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer. I am Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And we're really excited for today's interview. We are speaking with David Lee. David's the founder of the Law Offices of David L. Lee. He practiced and has taught for more than four decades and is primarily focused on representing employees. David has been the past president of the National Employment Lawyers Association. He graduated from the Northwestern University School of Law. And prior to being an attorney, David was a competitive and expert chess player and competed in national tournaments. We're going to have to come back to that. But David, welcome.
0: Thank you for coming on.
2: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: And I think you got a perfect score. I know the LSAT, the standardized test for law school admission, but probably every other test. So I think we're, we, we have our first genius guest on our, episode, on our
2: podcast. I, I've been listening religiously. You guys, guys do a great job. And there's been a number of geniuses on. So. <laughs> but when, when, when I took the LSAT, at that point, it was on the same scale as the SATs. 800 or at least that's what the SATs were back when I took them when you get an 800 at least back in my day they send you this note that says it is not a perfect score <laughs> it's the highest possible score but it's not a perfect score so I, they don't I'm want sure you to I get things going.
1: they don't want to get you too big for your britches they want you to right. score <laughs> as well as possible but even you screwed up sir
2: oh yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely although I walked out thinking I had screwed up, because I just remembered all the things that, oh, no, that couldn't have been right. That couldn't have been right.
1: That was sort of how the bar exam was for me. My poor wife had, like, suffered through me being an insufferable, you know what, for three years of law school, and, like, he gets out and thinks I'm going to be in this great mood when the test ends and comes to pick me up, and I walked out like I wanted to just start kicking puppies,
0: like I thought I was never going to be alive. I was, let's go home, I was just so tired. The, the the worst part for me was the week before the results were supposed to come out. Cause that was when I was mentally going through all the questions again and trying to look up all the answers. It's three months later. There's nothing I can do at that point. But I think we all kind of go through that process. Um, well, awkward transition now. So you've dedicated a lot of your career to representing employees, but tell us a little bit about what you did prior to employment law. Obviously, you played chess competitively.
2: Yes, yes. And, and- and, and still do a little bit, not nearly as much as when I was in college. I I In law school, I worked for an organization called the American Secure Society, which is kind of like a bar association for judges, but also laymen and court reform organization and all that, or it was back in the day. And I don't know if you guys watched Ted Lasso, but, you know, the, the character Dan, Danny goes around saying soccer or football is life football is life football things yes. soccer so i i in college and, and law school i was basically chess is life chess is life so that that was a huge part of my pre lawyer thing my my dad wanted to be a lawyer and he went back to law school nights when i was in high school he was in law school and we graduated the same week. I graduated high school. He graduated law school. And then he opened, he went out on his own. And I was his first legal secretary. I commuted to Northwestern from the house at my mom's house where I lived. My, my parents were divorced. And I after school, I'd go to my dad's house, which wasn't very far away, and sit in the basement and type stuff up, and that was that was the early 70s, so there was no such thing as word processing. He had, and it was so light, that, and, and the keys were kind of far apart, so if you're typing, if I was typing, sometimes my fingers would go through the keys, the space between the keys, instead of hit a key, and I'd pull my hand up, and the whole typewriter would come up, and Illinois still used legalized Pleadings back then, court papers. And the only copier around was at a currency exchange that was about a five minute drive away. So I type all this stuff up and I go to the currency exchange and I have to put in nickels to make the copies. And it was this wet process. You know, you guys are probably too young to know that, but. But before there was the nice copiers we had now, we had this wet process copying, and you know the papers would come out kind of icky. (laughs) You'd have to let them dry, and so I, you know, I'd go to court with my dad, and this was was in college, not in in law school, for me. So I, I remember one of the first times I went to court. Dad had sold insurance, and so a lot of his insurance friends were referring business to him which is a great way to start out and he got a referral of you know a kid who got a traffic ticket so we went to court to defend this guy and this was in one of the cook county suburban districts and in those days this was before the courthouses were built uh suburbs so in those days court was like in the of police stations or school gymnasiums or something like that. And so we walk into this school gymnasium and where court's been set up temporarily. And, you know, there's a bunch of benches. There's a, a big table in front for the judge and the clerk. And over on the side, there's kind of like a picnic bench where there's a bunch of police officers who are going to be testifying on the traffic tickets. And in front of them, on the, on the picnic table, are a bunch of, like, beer cans and liquor bottles and all that. And the police are just laughing. Court hasn't started yet, you know, laughing and talking a good old time. And my dad and I walk in, and I'm a college sophomore. And I look over at the police behind all this liquor and beer and all that laughing and all. And, and I'm outraged. And I I go, dad, dad, look at that. Look at the police. Look at the liquor. Look, I don't believe it. And he looks over at the police and the beer and the liquor. And he looks back at me and he looks over at the police and the beer and liquor and he looks back at me and he kind of whispers into my ear in that, you know, special loving way only fathers have you moron that's evidence (laughs) oh evidence (laughs) that's incredible that's amazing the injustice
1: you thought you'd stumbled onto
0: yeah (laughs) yeah it it seemed uh, like it'd be a win-win either way because if it wasn't evidence you're representing someone with a traffic violation so these in this situation maybe that's what you wanted
2: (laughs) yeah 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 so, but, um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, 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 no.
2: My first job was at a big law firm, Strawn, and I did a lot of commercial litigation and antitrust. I, and that's basically what I did before I got into employment law.
0: Yeah, I thought for a period I would be an antitrust attorney. It's it To me, it's interesting. It's, in some ways, I do a lot of non-compete work now. It's similar yeah. in a lot of ways.
1: D- David, you that's a good transition because we wanted to, you you know, you've been referred to as sort of the dean or godfather, you and and to an extent, Rich Gonzalez as well have really are responsible for many, if not most of us doing what we do. So how did you make the transition from being at one of the biggest firms in the city and the country would have you doing antitrust work to an area of law that when you started was not nearly as robust or um, viable, I think, probably as it is now?
2: Yeah. Well, the short answer is I got fired. (laughs) And so I had worked on a couple of employment cases, like three, when I was at Winston. One was pro bono, an unemployment hearing. One was an ERISA case where our client was being sued by the Department of Labor. And one they actually made the textbooks and might still be in there. Uh, this is all public record. So, so I feel I can talk about it. But it was a case Mary Carroll against Tauman Federal Savings and Loans, which if you're an old Chicagoan, they sponsored like all the baseball games and things like that on radio when they still existed. But we got that case because Mary Carroll was the sister of a partner. And so we were representing the, the employee and I was assigned to it at a, at a, you know, a very low level. I was probably the fifth, I, you know, there were four people above me on the case. But anyways, at that point, Tallman had a policy, an employment policy, a dress code that men tellers, male tellers should wear appropriate business attire. And female tellers, which Mary Carroll were given this sort of mix and match polyester outfit ensemble that they called, that Tolman called a career ensemble. And they were that, you know, and they could mix and match, but, you know, they had to wear something from the career ensemble. And one day, Mary Carroll showed up in a really nice tailored pantsuit really a good outfit and got fired. And so she went to her brother, the partner, and we uh, did a charge of discrimination and filed suit. My job was trying to research dress code cases. And there really weren't any. There, there, there were some, but they all fell into two categories. One was sort of the very early sexual harassment cases, where the boss would like make, uh, you know, the women waitresses wear very revealing outfits, or the secretary wear revealing outfit or something like that. And the other one were men trying to avoid the Vietnam War draft by using the Corporal Klinger from MASH uh, strategy of, of dressing like a, like a woman. And there were none that I found in my research, and I don't think there were any because nobody else found any either, where men and women had different dress codes. We lost, in the district court and appeal to the seventh circuit and the seventh circuit reversed and entered judgment for us saying that this was just a per se violation of title seven if you trusted men to wear appropriate business attire you had to trust women in the same job to wear appropriate business attire now they did say that you know appropriate attire attire could be different for the two sexes, but you couldn't have appropriate attire for one sex and a uniform for the other sex. So that was my my first big employment case. Anyways, Winston fired me and I went into practice with my dad. So I like to tell people I went from a 200 lawyer firm to a two lawyer firm. And my dad did mostly personal injury because of his insurance connections he he did you know some divorce, some traffic, some workers' comp, and so I did all that. But I had had this incredibly minor employment experience, and so I did some employment cases for him. Anyways, my dad was looking toward retirement, and I didn't want to run the practice, so I I left and I got a job at the clinic. Chicago Kent, where uh, some years later Rich Gonzalez joined, and, and we had offices next to each other and went out to lunch together almost every day. But anyways, when I started at the clinic at Kent, you have to get cases to to, to have caseload for the students to work on, and also as you discussed in your podcast with Rich, Kent requires the professors to create attorneys' fees to support the clinic. So you had to, you had to have a caseload. And a lot of the cases came in because we were on lists with judges and agencies. And so my first like year or so there, I did a lot of what we call poverty law cases. So there was a lot of evictions, a lot of paternity defenses, a lot of uncontested divorces, and things like that, collection cases. And in the mix were some employment cases. And for most of the cases, my students and I could prevent a complete railroading of our client, but we couldn't actually get any, you know? I mean, like if we did a paternity defense, and this is when blood tests were first becoming acceptable as evidence of paternity because they could start looking at markers and things like that. You know, we get the lab report and it would always come back that my client had a 99.99999999% chance of being the father, right? So if we were doing a collection case, my client had always, you know, not paid on the loan or defaulted or something. If we were doing an eviction case, my client had not paid the rent or was selling drugs out of the apartment or something. But the one employment cases because there we could actually get the client something you know severance or the job back or something and we could get attorney's fees which made the clinic happy and helped me meet my obligation to generate fees and and I had really good memories of employment cases mostly from the Mary Carroll case that, that I was mentioned so After about a year in the clinic, I I started just concentrating on cases and turning down the other types of cases. And also, when I handled a lot of different types of cases at the clinic, I always felt I was up against an expert. If it was a paternity defense, the opposing attorney was a state's attorney who was assigned to that courtroom and did nothing but trying to prove paternity. If it was a divorce case, the opposing attorney was a divorce lawyer. If it was an eviction case, the opposing attorney was a real estate attorney who did evictions, you know, and we were running around among all these areas of law. I started concentrating on employment cases, like I said. And so one day, year or two in, I had a case at the Human Rights Commission, which is this administrative agency that basically has employment lawsuits, but but it's not a, it's an agency. Um, and I always try and get along with my opposing attorney. And so the opposing attorney was there and I was, was there and we were waiting in the waiting area for the case to be called. And my opponent said to me like, like, do they have rules or anything here? I said, Oh, sure, you know. And here, there's a booklet in this closet here, here, there's all the rules and all that. And I realized for the first time since I had been at the clinic that instead of the other lawyer being the expert, I'm an expert, or at least kind of an expert. And, you know, that felt really good. And I, like I said, I just concentrated on employment cases from then on, and that was probably in 85. Uh, and so it's been like 36 years that I've just done, almost just done employment cases.
1: David, I remember, I think maybe the first time you and I ever connected in person, I'd seen you at various brown bag events when you used to host them on Jackson and the Manodnack building and all that. But at that reception, when Nila's National's conference was in Chicago, Richland, mm-hmm. a, a few different people spoke at a, at a reception honoring you. And one of the things they talked about was that when you got into this area of law, this business, whatever you wanna call it, it was like motion to dismiss practice, that you'd show up, you'd file your case, it would get dismissed and you'd appeal or move on with your day. I'm sure there's a little bit of exaggeration there, but can you talk a little bit about what it was like early on, the sorts of cases you saw, and if the playing field has changed at all since you got into it?
2: Yeah, when I started employment in the federal claims, except for age discrimination, there was no jury trial. And there were basically no state court claims except breach of contract, which was pretty rare. So in federal court, I think, I think it was Rich Gonzalez. said, you know, the judges look at us like the divorce docket of the federal courts, which doesn't exist, you know, just want to get rid of us. And so we a lot of cases in the Human Rights Commission where the, the judges only did employment cases and seemed, you know, interested and, and, and all that. So back then, sort of the the folk wisdom of employee-side employment lawyers in, in Chicago was a good case. You take it to the Human Rights Commission Unless it's an age case, in which case you can get a jury trial in federal court. But in in the federal court cases, a lot of them got kicked out on on motions to dismiss, but most of them got summary judgment back then. And I think the judges felt freer to grant summary judgment because they were the fact they weren't taking it away They were just taking it away from themselves after after what would have been a full trial. So I, I think a lot of them think that it was smart on their part to just sort of shortcut it. And, you know, they read the affidavits and they think, well, this is what I'd rule at trial. So um, I'll kick them out on summary judgment. And, and for for your for your listeners who aren't lawyers, the 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 way the law is supposed to work is that. If there is stuff that isn't crystal clear, a jury is supposed to hide it, or in those days, a judge after a trial. And summary judgment is technically only if things are crystal clear. You know, it just couldn't really go any other way. But like I say, I think judges felt more free to kind of ignore that law. It was, they were going to make in one way or another. But that, unfortunately, I think led to some really bad habits and really bad sort of little doctrines of law that are unique to employment about like what's evidence and what's not evidence and and it really kind of haunts us to this day
1: It almost kind of reminds me if anybody's familiar with baseball, if either of you are familiar at all with baseball history and Supreme Court precedent, that there's a horrific, like early 20th or late 19th century decision called Toulson, where Oliver Wendell Holmes, who didn't understand baseball and thought it was a stupid game and there's no way anybody could do this for a living, basically created the baseball antitrust exemption, I think almost by accident, you know, at a time when he thought we were just litigating over a stupid sporting event that was beneath his time, basically. And that that sort of thing stood the test of time for like 100 years, because, you know, because somebody didn't have the time of day for it in an antiquated time. And for one reason or another, it just stands and it's just bad law that keeps getting built on, right? Like these things don't just go away overnight.
2: Yeah, in, in distinction to Justice Holmes, not knowing or caring about baseball, I think in the Kirk Flood case in the Supreme Court I think it was Justin wrote the decision and the first like three or five pages are just like this poem to baseball you know listing the great players and and how wonderful baseball is and all that
1: there's a there's a great book I read at, at Kent actually they make you take a some sort of an academic you're supposed to write a paper your last year as a 3L and like it was I don't know baseball law and it was Like one of the criticisms in the book, which is called A Well Paid Slave about Kurt Flood's fight, is about basically how these judges who were all these respected jurists would like go to pieces and fall all over themselves to fawn at the majesty of the sport of baseball every single time a decision got up to them, rather than writing like grown-ups they would in any other decision. It's like you
2: know.
1: know, So anyway, I've derailed us a little bit, but
2: be derailed for baseball.
1: David, how did that change over time? Like, when did your practice start to morph in terms of what you took on? And when did you start to see a difference in how courts and, and your colleagues started to treat this area of law?
2: Well, my practice morphed from sort of general poverty law to employment law in the mid-80s, when 1985, 1986. And back then... There weren't many of the employment laws we have now. There was not the Family and Medical Leave Act. There was not the Americans with Disabilities Act. It was kind of unthinkable that you know gay people would have rights under Title VII, and so so not to mention some of the things like the Genetic, you know, Non-Discrimination Act and 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 all that. So one huge change has been sort of the proliferation. Of, of laws that protect the employee. One thing, one thing that this is not really answering your question, but there are areas of the law, where great like judges, professors and lawyers and all that get together, and say, like, let's make this work. You know, the the sort of the classic example is commercial transactions, you know, which and banking transactions, which lawyers call the UCC for Uniform Commercial Code, you know, there there were conferences, there were you know, and and they in the late fifties, early they came up with this code of laws that just tried to make this whole area work, you know. And there are other areas like that. Employment law is an area like that, not at all. Employment law is super historical. And so there's like very little effort to make it all fit together. You know, there'll be some sort of scandal or something or some sort of felt need and a law will be passed. You know, it might be the genetic act or it might be the family medical leave act or it might be cobra you know oh people who get fired lose their health insurance we gotta do something about that okay let's do this you know and no and nobody is fitting it all together you know so so the as as we live through history and as more of this happens and more laws are passed that that is you know the biggest change i think and also as we live, laws are passed and they get publicity then the employees kind of hear about it and 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 have their own ideas about what rights they have and you know things like that and so i think if you went to the typical employee or the typical lawyer said so let's start with in the 19 and said, what rights do employees have? It would be, you know, like next to none. Right. And, and employees, if they weren't unionized, probably the same. And I think that's, that's changed. I think now, unfortunately, and I think with Rich Gonzalez, I think it's the first one for anybody who hasn't heard the podcast with Rich Gonzalez, I definitely recommend Listen to them because Rich is incredible and you guys did a great job with him. Rich said something like, you know, employees' idea of, of what their rights on the job is, are, is a little bit warped. It's not what their actual rights are.
1: It is interesting. Sometimes the things you hear folks say about what was right or what was wrong or where the employer kind of crossed the line, I guess it's instructive, right? Because I mean, sometimes it's, it feels a little ridiculous, but other times I think it gives you a, a line of thinking into why people operate the way they do, or maybe their decisions are rational in the context of what they think their protections are, right? Like in a vacuum, what they may or may not have done looks ridiculous. But if you think, oh, well, if you think this, that, or the other is the case, and you have certain rights that, that the three of us know don't exist you know, maybe their decision making looks different in that light.
2: You know, the, 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 the real person comes out in those situations, like in the, in NILA, in the National Employment Lawyers Association, we have a saying that, you know, our clients always show us why they were fired, you know, and I think Rich also in the podcast said, you know, like if the client's fired for being tardy they'll be tardy to their first appointment with you. If the client's fired for just being a general jerk, they're going to treat your staff terribly. They may treat you terribly. And, and uh, if the client's fired for not following directions, you'll say to the client, well, here's my advice. You should do this, this, and this. And the client like, no, nah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like that advice. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, so I think the, the person always comes out.
0: We, we spoke with Rich about this a little bit too.
2: You know, a lot of times a person comes out, but they're
0: also dealing with very difficult life transitions and, you know, you, and you started your career too in poverty law, where it's probably that same type of difficult situation just escalated or on steroids. And so what advice do you then have to attorneys on how to, you know, in a healthy way, manage those situations, have those conversations with those clients, kind of the gauntlet of those, of those situations.
2: So my advice is a little schizophrenic. I would say get uh, a couple of good books or videos on counseling. When I taught at Kent, I taught a course called Interviewing and Counseling. And I had young kids then, and, which is its own challenge. And there was this book that my, my wife and I loved called something like, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. And it's about uh, a famous child psychologist, and I'm having a senior moment on his name. He had a very humane way of dealing with children. And and these were some of his disciples. They wrote an earlier book that was a little more theoretical. And this book just had tons of examples and things, which were wonderful. Although reading it, I, I did feel from time to time calling him up and saying, would you like to come live in my house for a week or two? But I actually assigned that book in the course interviewing and counseling and a few other books on on therapy and brought in therapists as guest lecturers. So there's that part, but then the schizophrenic part is remember you are not a therapist, right? You're a lawyer and you might suggest the client go into therapy. You might suggest the client talk to friends or whatever, but you are not a therapist, unless you are, you know, but like, you know, there are people who have master in social work and law degrees or something. But for most lawyers, we are not therapists.
0: What about the flip side, you know, being I think an employment attorney, just being an attorney in general can be difficult. How do you recommend attorneys stay somewhat, you know, personally fulfilled and healthy as they're not being a therapist, but counseling people who probably need to see a therapist. Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all
1: of our guest stories, and we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show.
0: Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share.
1: And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review.
0: But only if it's
1: going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set.
2: I think that that's really difficult for most of us. When it comes down to it, the practice of law is relationships—relationships relationships with clients, relationships with the opposing attorney, relationships with judges, and 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 with colleagues. You know, I, I would say you're having problems with something. You should be in therapy, and and it's very helpful. You know, I mean, there's. And that there are therapists and it's not just to take our money there. If, if you need interventions, there are bar session programs, you know, I did that. I mean, just thing having colleagues joining NILA, Illinois, if you're in Illinois, joining national NILA for all employee side employment lawyers. One of the great things about like NILA convention when they're held in person, which they haven't been in the last couple of years is to go someplace and meet people from all over the country who have your problems, you know, you're not unique in your problems. They have the same, you know, crazy things. They have the same problems with judges. They have the same difficult opposing attorneys. And, and for me, at least, going to those things and realizing, first of all, I'm not alone. And second of all, it's it's not me. You know, I'm not uniquely engendering these problems. Really, really helped with with my own mental health.
1: The thing I liked about the Mila National, the only one I've attended was the one in Chicago, was listening to folks from some, let's call it slightly more conservative jurisdictions where the decisions are even less favorable in the federal courts or There are fewer state laws that that offer us assistance. And it's like, well, things are challenging, but it could always be worse, right? At
2: some of my first MILA conventions, well, there was a a wonderful, wonderful MILA lawyer, Rick Seymour, who just died last week, unfortunately, in his late 70s after fighting cancer for 10 or 20 years. Uh, But there was Rick Seymour and there were other really great NILA lawyers from around the country. And they were talking, just you know, like in the hallway after a session or something. And I kind of came up and they were they were talking about like what's the worst circuit, you know, and some well, I'm from the Fifth Circuit. That's gotta be the worst, right? That's like the deep south or the southwest rather, Texas, Louisiana. So I I Joined the conversation. Didn't really know any of those people then. And I said, "Well, I'm from Chicago, so I'm from the Seventh Circuit, and that's got to be the worst, right?" Then Rick Seymour looked at me and said, "Like, who are you? And you don't know what you're talking about," (laughs) (laughs) which was very true.
0: What ended up winning? Which circuit? Did you all have a consensus?
2: It's probably the fifth. Through the 11th, which are which is the deep south and the southwest. The fourth, which is Virginia and the Carolinas, has been really bad at times. Yeah.
1: Although it started to improve. There are some decent, I know just because my first job was at a, a more national firm, there have slowly but surely, there's some decent district court judges in, in certain Virginia districts now. Although, um, yeah, there are still some pretty frustrating procedural things. One of them's got like a rocket docket that's pretty ironclad that they really don't deviate from. That can be kind of a. Right. Uh, draconian way to practice and all that
2: right
0: so you talked about you ha- you were working at the clinic at what point did you open up your own law office was that an 85
2: no no I worked in the clinic to into a 91 and I got fired which is kind of a recurring theme of the first half of my uh, career which is why I now work for myself I was I was interviewing for jobs there was this small firm that did a lot of like shareholder class action work. And it was really just there. And he thought that maybe combining that with employment law was sort of a natural thing. So I, I worked there. So that was 91 to 93. in 93 my boss Frederick Brace who also unfortunately died a few years ago and went by the name of Fritz who might be the best lawyer i've ever known he won a 55 million dollar verdict in circuit in a business case which he had on a contingency and he decided to retire so i didn't get fired from this job <laughs> the 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 office closed because fritz fritz retired and I went out on my own, but he had a lease. And so he let me use his office, basically rent free. But in return, I had to give him a certain number of hours to help close down his cases that were still going on. After those hours, I got paid hourly, not, you know, not a tremendous amount, but, but it was great. I had like no overhead and money was coming in. And just by happenstance, I won a case at the Human Rights Commission right at that time and settled it and, and got a really, really nice fee from settling it. I asked Fritz if, you know, he should have some of the fee because I worked on that case. I actually had started it at the clinic worked at it on Fritz's office and closed it when I was on my own. But Fritz was very generous and said, no, no, you know, I'm retired. You take the fee. So like the first six months was incredible. I had all this money rolling in and I didn't have overhead. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. You know, I years ago. And then Fritz is leaning out and I finished working on his practice and I had to get my own office and I hit a settlement drought and I discovered, boy, there are times when there's no money coming in and there's still money going out, you know, but anyways, that's a long answer. I opened my own office. It was July 1st, 1993.
1: David, do you, do you have any advice for young attorneys who are setting out down this path, whether setting up shop on their own, trying to establish an employment practice in a shop, somebody else, you know, place them in or broad question, but you know, anything.
0: Yeah, outside of meeting someone like Fritz who can kind of keep yeah. your overhead low.
2: One thing is definitely join NILA, Illinois and join National NILA and pay attention to all the posts on the listserv because it's the greatest like ongoing floating seminar on employee law in the world. If one thing I recommend like your cross examinations. Skills. I have this theory that there are three sort of types of cross examination. There's a preparation cross, or three skills, I should say preparation, logic, story logic, that is, and strategy. And a preparation cross is, you know, digging into the documents, seeing what people have said, probably making up a chart or a cheat sheet to, 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 okay, I'm going to ask this question phrased in this way, and they answered that exact question this other way, and I've got it right here. And if they vary at all, then you know, then I'll impeach them. And story logic cross is is listening to the direct testimony and thinking like, well, that doesn't make sense, you know wait a minute, if that happened, why didn't this happen? Or if this happened, why didn't this other thing happen? Or wait, that timeline is impossible or whatever. And and just sort of figuring out what's wrong with the this, this story. And a strategic loss is like, or a strategic strategy skill is like, What would I like to get from this witness? Does this witness hurt me? Can I make this witness my witness? Does this witness help me? You know, do I want to ask questions? Do I not want to ask questions at all? And most lawyers are better at one of those than at the other two, or they're weakest at one than at the other two. So what I recommend for young lawyers, for lawyers who are starting out is some cross examination experience, and you can do that by like volunteering to defend people at unemployment. There's also a program where you can get paid for representing people at unemployment, that would be even better. And try so, you know, if in unemployment there's not a lot of preparation. But, you know, there's a little bit. And so you can try out the prep there. You can listen to the story and you can try out, you know, the story logic part of it. And, you know, you can you have to think on the fly. Did this witness hurt me? You know, do I do, do I want to cross this witness? Can I make this witness my own and all that? So one thing I would suggest for lawyers starting out is. Get some experience by like volunteering to do unemployment hearings or if possible, getting paid for unemployment hearings. The federal court in Chicago has a settlement program where you can help unrepresented people just for settlement. So you're not committing to the whole case by any means. You're just going to go in for a morning or an afternoon. And that's that's a good way to get experience in being with people in settlement conferences and seeing how settlements run and things like that in terms of like money if you're out on your own and you're a member of national NILA and NILA Illinois put on the list you know you're available for contract work and that you have very reasonable rates for fellow NILA members and you know maybe what you think you're good at you know like I'm a really good writer or I'm a really good researcher or I'm really good with people you know I can do client intakes or you know initial consults with your clients or whatever and keep your overhead as low as possible if you're on your own. Overhead is like the Chinese water torture of business you know it's drip 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 oh my god and 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 some of the expenses are tiny you know but okay i gotta spend ten dollars on this i gotta spend fifteen dollars on this oh god three hundred dollars for this and you know and it's just it doesn't stop you know so do your best to keep it low although my dad used to say you don't get rich by cutting your expenses you know all you can do is stay afloat by cutting your expenses um
1: well, and Some of that stuff. No. And some of that stuff you can't help. Right. If you're going to file, if you're going to be an employment litigator at some point, you're going to have to file lawsuits and file appearances. That stuff costs money. Like, yeah, you take depositions, those transcripts and the court reporters cost money.
2: Well, yeah. Anyway, oh, that that brings up a good point, which is do your best not to advance costs, you know. Try and get a cost retainer up front that you put in your trust account and you pay costs from. Get the client's agreement in writing up front that they will pay, you know, they'll reimburse you within, you know, a week or something, you know, and and explain in detail to the client, like if you're in federal court. Okay, we're going to do depositions. A deposition is like an interview under oath in front of the court reporter, right? And the court reporters charge, right? We can't get out of that. So the court reporters charge in two ways. First of all, they charge to show up, okay? I pay them just to be there. And then they charge to change their their notes, which are not in English, but in a special court reporter language, in English that you can read. And that's a per page charge, you know, and different court reporters are different, but if it's a dollar a page and it's a thousand page deposition, that's a thousand dollars, right? And then tell the client, I think, how you're going to try and save them the money, right? So look, this is your money, and I don't want to spend your money unnecessarily. So very cautious on the depositions I take. I don't, if I take a deposition, I try and be very efficient and quick so that instead of a thousand page deposition, it's a hundred page deposition that would save you like $900, right? We don't have to order the transcript right away. I don't order the transcript routinely to sell that money. I only order the transcript if we absolutely need to, like if the doing something in court where we need the transcript, or we're going to a trial and we need the transcript. So I'm doing all these things to money, but you have to pay the costs. I don't pay costs.
0: Yeah, I really wish there was a required um, course in law school, which was just what you just said for the last couple of minutes, explaining how you run a business, the costs are going to add up. How do you talk to clients about costs, putting money in a trust account? All those little things I think would be super beneficial for a lot of young attorneys.
2: Yeah, my dad used to say that law school should offer a course called Clenched Fist 101. What <laughs> um,
0: was well that? We have one segment left. You, you've listened before, so you probably know what's coming. We call it our shout out of the week. It can be a person, a book, a TV show, anything you want to shout
2: out or highlight for, for the recent week. Well, first of all, your podcast. If if somebody's listening that hasn't listened to other episodes, go back and listen to them. I've I've said the Rich Gonzalez's were excellent. Catherine Gill was excellent. I I, I liked well I liked all of them. You know, Jason Hahn did two episodes. That was very interesting because he sort of had a interesting career arc. I would say, yeah, I, I would I would go listen to to all the the episodes. You had two with a, oh, not senior moment, I'm blocking on the name, but the, the woman who's like a recruiter.
1: Susan, right? Susan yeah, Susan.
2: Yeah. Oh, sorry, gossip. Uh, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were wonderful. So my first shout outs to your podcast, to, for lawyers, to NILA, Illinois, and National NILA really belong to both. They serve somewhat different functions and don't think that doing one covers you, you you really want to be in both. If you aren't watching Ted Lasso, watch Ted Lasso and Star Trek. So much Star Trek these days. Yay. Watch all the Star Trek. If you're an old, I I mean, I started watching Star Trek. It came on when I was in high school, you know, so I was a high school student with the original Star Trek was on. And, And it's easy to be you know my star trek is the only real star trek no it's all great they're wonderful watch them
1: you hear that david star trek is inevitable that was my <laughs> attempt at a borg joke it wasn't yeah. good I'm not, I'm not a trekkie although i'm a, a it's always fun stuff to watch well david adjacent <laughs> I'm, tra- I'm trekkie adjacent i have i have a couple of friends who are big trekkies and i i was more of a yeah. star wars fan growing up so i always kind of troll them a little bit seems to really get under their skin about it but people are militant one or the other i guess but in any event, David, thank you for coming on. This was such a, a treat. We're looking forward to round two with you at some point. Thanks to everybody at home for listening. David, one last question. If if people want to get in touch with you to ask you questions about your career, talk to you about past cases, pick your brain, anything, how do they find you?
2: My email is d like David and then a hyphen Lee, L E E, at davidleelaw.com. Email me or call cell or text my cell, either one, which is 312-952-1321.
1: David, thank you so much for coming on. Everybody listening at home, thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share. Our
0: podcast is intended to provide general reviews of employment laws. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.